I'd like to pick up where we were last week. Continue the story I began telling you of the Israelites flirting with this golden calf, this supposed holy nation, this kingdom of priests. They just weren't living up to their namesake. They melted down their gold, made for themselves an idol, doing the exact opposite thing that God called them to do, completely forsaking the first two vows they had made with their husband, Yahweh, at the altar. I'd like to tell you the other side of that story, if that's all right this morning. Because up on the mountain, as all of this is going on, we have Yahweh looking down, heartbroken as he sees this party unfolding. He gets Moses' attention and he says, quick, hurry back down the mountain. Your people. Wait a minute, I thought it was my people. Your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Up until this point, God has been zealous to refer to Israel as my people, even my firstborn son. But here the language shifts and it changes. They're no longer my people. They're Moses' people. How quickly they have turned away from the way that I commanded them. How quickly have they forgotten the vows and forsaken the vows that I given them. Can you hear the pain in Yahweh's voice this morning, church? We don't often think God is capable of talking this way, but here he is. Have you seen how rebellious and stubborn my people are? (laughs) Yahweh, I could have told you that a couple chapters ago. (laughs) Or maybe we've reached a boiling point. Now leave me alone. I never imagined God saying that. Now leave me alone. It sounds like something maybe we'd say. It sounds like some, the words of a heartbroken lover, someone in grief and mourning. It sounds like God's had enough, that he's through, that he's done, that he's ready to walk away. If the people want the calf, they can have the calf because they're no longer my people. In fact, Moses, why don't I just wipe the slate clean and start over with you. I'll fulfill my covenant I made with your forefathers through you and make you a great nation. I have every right to. What do you say, Moses? Before we're tempted to read this as a fire and brimstone kind of guy, I need to remind you the God that we're talking about here, a God that is pouring, has been pouring his heart out to these people this entire time. He undeservedly rescued them from slavery, unleashed his power against the pantheon in Egypt, has waited on these people hand and foot through a perilous desert, brought them to himself, entered into a special relationship with them, and was then planning to move into their neighborhood with a special portable mobile home. God is on the verge of accomplishing what he's wanted to do since the beginning of time, which was be in relationship with creatures made in his image and likeness. He wants to be Emmanuel. He wants to be God with us. And he set into motion all of these things, but no sooner does God do all of this, do the humans, not God, but the humans, they get cold feet and they undo everything God has done up to this point. By doing the thing God told him not to do. It's Genesis 3 all over again. If you've read Genesis, if you've read the beginning of Genesis, God creatively makes the world. 
and he makes creatures made in his image and likeness and he puts them in this garden to be in perfect unity for him. But then along comes Genesis chapter 3 and the humans not only rebel against God, but they also reject him entirely and they're, because they're tricked into doing something. They get cold feet and they disobey the one thing God told them to do. They ate that fruit, whatever it was, and it got them exiled out of the garden away from God. I've heard it said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. The Bible is the same way. Things are, try- are kind of rhyming here when God's trying to recreate a people unto himself. As God undertakes a new creation after he saved the people, the Israelites then fall like the original humans did back in the garden. Things sound suspiciously the same. That's why God's angry. Because he's having flashbacks to how he felt in the garden when the original humans betrayed him. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. He's weeping and he's heartbroken and he's distraught because it's happening all over again. So God's prepared to retrace Genesis with Moses. He's got to go through Genesis 6 through 8, which is the flood narrative, and wipe out the wicked. Then we finally get to Genesis chapter 12, where we meet Abraham. Because by saying what he does to Moses, God, in effect, is going back to Genesis 12 and posing Moses as a new Abraham. Moses will get the opportunity to benefit from the promises that Abraham did. And all he's got to do is say yes. Moses is being offered a secure, blessed future on a silver platter. A guy like Abraham who by faith, the author of Hebrews says, followed God to this moment. Through thick and thin, Moses has been an advocate for faith and trust in God, not the people. And so if the main attribute God's looking for is faith, Moses has that in spades and that makes him the prime candidate to start over. The offer's on the table. And the question is, will Moses take it and run? Will Moses take this deal and be done with the people who have been a thorn in his side since day one, who have been whining and complaining this entire time, even threatening to stone Moses on one occasion? Moses is given an exit strategy by none other than God himself, the same God who called him in a burning bush. Another way you could say it is God is letting the cup pass from Moses. Maybe Moses has prayed that prayer before. Take this cup from me and God is granted that request can you feel the conflict not only in Yahweh but in Moses this morning as well this is such an intriguing conversation that we get to eavesdrop on and I don't know if you're like me but I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to see will Moses take the deal deal or no deal would you I wonder if Moses could tell Yahweh was weeping. Not necessarily because he could see it, but he could hear it in his voice. Because all he can muster in response is, Oh, Lord. I mean, what would you say if God is pouring out his soul like this? But Moses keeps talking, and he has this three-pronged prayer appealing to Yahweh's reasonableness, his reputation, and his honor And he makes this compelling case why God shouldn't do what he claims he's going to do. 
And to his credit, Moses never hints at any desire to replace Abraham. He has no interests in easing his own problems by seeing the stubborn Israelites obliterated. A lesser person might have. But Moses puts the people's interests ahead of his own, and through this selfless act, it caused God, in the words of Exodus, to change his mind. Scholars puzzle over this interaction between Moses and God, of God changing his mind, of a human having this sort of influence on God. What do we make of this conversation? I'm going to take a crack at it. I think there's a case to be made that Moses is wrestling with God, almost as if as God is egging him on to, as if God is saying, leave me alone, wasn't necessarily a command, rather it was a challenge. And what if God is thinking out loud with a purpose, and he's beckoning a human to challenge him? So this whole thing is an invitation, if you will, to get in the ring like Jacob, like a true Israelite, like some people of faith we've seen in the Bible do, and wrestle with what God is thinking of doing. Moses has no power over God, and God doesn't need to ask Moses for his permission. But this is the God's way of saying, here's what I'm going to do unless you try to stop me, and will you? I believe God is inviting Moses to intercede on the behalf of of this people, to plead the case of another person or a group of people. Moses isn't the only one to do this in the Bible. In Abraham, I'm sorry, in Genesis 18, Abraham, when he's visited by three heavenly visitors, they represent God himself. And as they're about to leave, they have this curious interaction where they look across the horizon at Sodom and Gomorrah. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy than Sodom and Gomorrah. They're the perfect example of the fallenness from Genesis 3. And the Lord says to himself that he plans to wipe them out from the face of the earth. This is divine justice. And in Genesis 18, we have this curious note where God says to himself, should I hide my plans from Abraham? Abraham then asks the Lord, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? I don't think that's really fair. Why do you treat the righteous the same as the wicked? Surely if there's 50 people in Sodom, you won't wipe that city clean off the map. And amazingly, the Lord agrees. If I find 50 people, if I find 50 righteous in Sodom, I will spare the entire city. Abraham interceded on the behalf of some no-good strangers with God and managed to seemingly change God's mind. He will do this a few more times because eventually he'll whittle it down to just 10 people, only 10 people righteous in Sodom, because I guess Abraham's not as confident in how many righteous are living in Sodom. You never said Abraham wasn't a betting man, but it's a fascinating story of Abraham interceding for people. How about another story you maybe know? Surely you know the story of Jonah. If you need a picture of Jonah, I have one on the screen for you. frame of reference. God calls Jonah and he tells them to preach to the city of Nineveh because of their wickedness. Have you ever heard this story? He's going to show some divine justice and Jonah reluctantly eventually goes and he says God's going to destroy the city of Nineveh in 40 days. The irony of Jonah, this is the entire point of the book of Jonah, is that Jonah doesn't want to intercede on Nineveh's behalf. 
He wants God to destroy that pagan city, and he gets frustrated that his intercession actually works. Go back and read Jonah and see it for yourself, because Jonah knows that if he intercedes on Nineveh's behalf, God will forgive them. It's why he doesn't want to go in the first place. He wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. That's the children's church answer. This is the real answer, because he knew that God would relent from destroying the people that he hated if he spoke up for them. Jonah knew the power of human intercession on the behalf of even the worst offenders. Intercession. We don't talk about it very much, but it's a part of God's interactions with humans, and it was baked into the theology and the rituals of Israel. In fact, it was one of the primary functions of the priests. The priests in ancient Israel were essentially the pastors or they're the clergy, and they had a lot of important jobs, but one of them, the main one, was to be mediators or intercessors on behalf of the people. They were someone that stood between you and God, and they petitioned for divine favor and blessing on your behalf before a holy God. They would be your advocate because they would stand and take your place and plead your case when you were in trouble. If you were sick or you were dying, they would go to God on your behalf. If you needed crops, if you need moisture for your crops, they would pray to God for you. But more importantly, if you inevitably sinned, if you broke one of those covenant vows that we talked about with Yahweh, they would plead your case for forgiveness. That's what intercession is. That's what all those sacrifices and ceremonies are about in the book of Leviticus. Go read the book of Leviticus. It's as clear as mud. You can learn more about it because the priest would go before an almighty God through prayers or offering offerings and they'd make atonement for your sins. Atonement is this fancy word we use in the church. We don't often define it. Atonement just simply means at one meant or at one with. A way of making harmony and peace between two people. In theology, we like to talk about it in the sense that humans can be at one with God. So whatever sin was separating humans from God, it can be atoned for, and the distance between humans and God can be closed. The priests would have these sacrifices. And a person's sin would be transferred onto someone or something, and usually it was an animal. And that sacrificial vessel would take your place and receive the wrath and judgment of God reserved for you. In exchange, you, the sinner, can be at one with God because your sin was appeased. In other words, what the, when the animal was killed, it was symbolically and ritualistically received by God instead of you. An individual or even an entire community could have their sins transferred to the animal and as a result, covered by the shedding of the blood. It was a life for a life and those who were under it were figuratively covered by the blood when that sacrifice was made and they were set free from the consequences of guilt and shame of sin and they were cleansed of their sin and they were set free to enjoy and participate in a relationship in a communion and a oneness with their God. That's what it was. Once a year, we had this special day, and it's known as Yom Kippur. It was this day of atonement. It was the most solemn, holy day of all the Israelite feasts and festivals. And on this day, the high priest, or the priest that was in charge of all the other priests, he was permitted to go into what was known as the Holy of Holies, which is this innermost chamber in either the tabernacle or later the temple. 
And on this day, the holy priest would remove his priestly garments and he would take a bath and don himself in pure white linen robes, symbolizing repentance. And then he'd make a sin offering on behalf of himself and the priests with a young bull or some other animal. And then he'd enter into the Holy of Holies and using his fingers, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and on the floor in front of it. Then the high priest, this is interesting, then the high priest would cast lots between two live goats that had been brought by the people. One goat was killed as a sin offering for the entire nation for that year. And its blood was then added to the previous. But the remaining goat, the high priest would place its hands on its head and confess all the sins of the whole nation on it. Then he would give that goat to an attendant and that attendant would go outside the camp and then he'd set it free to leave in the wilderness. This is where the idea of the scapegoat comes from because the goat would carry the sins of the people far away. Beautiful picture. All of this ceremony and ritual wasn't to be taken lightly. And it may sound strange to us, but it's a picture. It's a performance of God's gracious purification of our sins. It's a sort of reenacted prayer for forgiveness, of priests interceding on your behalf. So like I said, intercession is baked into the theology and the rituals of Israel through the role of the priest. It happened all the time. And you get these visual, tangible symbols of intercession, more than we see today. And one can make the argument that intercession may be the most integral part of a priest. And so here in Exodus 32, we have Moses acting like a priest. He's interceding. He's acting like a priest. He's going before God, pleading the case of these blatant sinners at the foot of the mountain in hopes of persuading God to relent and forgive and begging God, change your mind. Later on in that same chapter, after Moses has come down the mountain, confronted the people, melted the golden calf, and made him drink it, Moses tells them how he's going to go back up the mountain and try to atone for what they've done. He can't make any guarantees, but he says, you've committed this terrible sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain, and perhaps I can obtain forgiveness for your sins. And it's in this continuation of their conversation from before when Moses intercedes again before all these sacrifices that I talked about are implemented. He, because he doesn't have a bull or a ram, he makes the courageous decision and he says, why don't I sacrifice myself if it meant you'll forgive the people, God? But if you only forgive their sin, if not erase my name from the record you've written. Other translations say blot my name from the book you've written. A life for a life. Moses is willing to trade his life if it means sparing everyone else's. So even before they have a tabernacle, Moses is functioning like a high priest, atoning for the nation's sin, and he's even being the sacrifice himself. Moses is willing to atone for the people by funneling all of God's wrath and righteous anger at him. If it means he'll be blotted out of the book of life, at least it can bring life to the people. The death of one can bring the life of many. It's this beautiful picture in Exodus 32. But did you notice that God says no? <laughs> God rejects Moses' offer to be a substitute. He does it for two reasons. One, because Moses wasn't pure and blameless. He wasn't a worthy substitute because you have to not have sinned. 
That's the only way you can bear the guilt of another person's sin. Moses is still a sinner even though he didn't worship the golden calf. The other reason is that Moses isn't guilty of the crime he's willing to take on. God says, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. Or translation, only the guilty can be punished. Moses' death won't make things right because his actions didn't make things wrong in the first place. But this is the mystery, friends, that points to another high priest who was to come. One who would walk in the footsteps of Moses, yet surpass them. What Moses is doing foreshadows one who was to come, one who was to intercede not simply on Israel's behalf, but on the behalf of humankind. When the fullness of time had come, the Apostle Paul tells the Galatians, one who radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, the preacher in Hebrew says, he appeared. And he was made in every respect like us, and he took on our human nature, flesh and blood. He was fully human, just like you and me, so that he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people, Hebrew says. Because despite being fully human and living a full human life, he didn't sin. And when, like Moses, Christ interceded for all of humankind, not on Sinai, but on a different hill called Calvary, offering himself in the place of sinners, again like Moses tried to do, willing to have his name blotted out of the book of life through the death on a cross, sacrificing his life, taking the penalty meant for undeserving sinners, to set people free from the guilt and the power and the nature of sin forever, a life for a life. God accepted Christ's atoning sacrifice once and for all. Moses did all of these same steps, or at least he tried to do anyway, but he was rejected by God. But why wasn't Christ rejected? Because he was worthy of bearing the guilt of our sin because he himself was without sin. Yet, surprisingly, he was treated as if he was guilty, that our sins were put on him and conversely taken on us. And this is the great mystery and the amazing grace of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on Good Friday, my friends. Because he was innocent, he was blameless, and having never sinned, like those animals that were sacrificed in days of old, all of humanity's sins were transferred onto him. Yet in the death on the cross, God punished and treated him as if he did all those sins even though he never did. And that's why his sacrifice was acceptable. We can't explain this riddle. Someone who was sinless being treated as a sinner, all we can do is stand amazed that he took my sins and my sorrows and that he made, me, made them his very own and he bore my burden to Calvary and he suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. But the crazy thing about Jesus, you guys, is that Jesus wasn't just the atoning sacrifice for sins. Because after his death and resurrection, Jesus told his closest friends that he was preparing to ascend, that he was going to return into glory and be reunited with his heavenly Father. Many people mistakenly hear that as Jesus leaving. As if you get to the end of the Gospels, you flip over to Acts chapter 1, and you get this sort of anticlimactic conclusion. Jesus is with his disciples one moment, and then he just rises into the sky and disappears. Almost as Jesus is abandoning his, his plan, as, as you could say. He says, well, I'm done with my work. I'm out. See you all when I come back. But for the apostles later on writing, this could be, couldn't be further from the truth. When Luke says in Acts chapter 1 that he was taken into the cloud while they were watching, this is not Jesus up and out as I recently heard described. It was Jesus going over 
and in, that he's going into heaven because he didn't leave. He said that he was returning and that he was going to finish what he started at Christmas because when he returned, he didn't return as just another member of the Trinity. He returned with our flesh, friends, our humanity, wounds and all, and he was seated at the right hand of God the Father, and you know what he's doing. He's serving as your high priest, your advocate, your intercessor. The book of Hebrews is believed to be maybe an ancient sermon. We don't know who the preacher was. And I encourage you to read that sermon this week because that sermon's entire point, in a nutshell, is wrapped up in this idea that Jesus not only was the sacrifice that atoned for our sins, for all of humankind once and for all, but that he is now humanity's perfect high priest. Can I give you a snippet of that sermon? I know it's Memorial Day weekend. I won't read the entire book. But can I give you just a snippet of that sermon? The preacher says, There are many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who have come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heavens. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. He entered into that more perfect tabernacle in heaven which was not made by human hands and not part of this created world. And with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered into the most holy place once and for all and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he's the one who mediates a far better covenant between God and his people so that we who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them under that old covenant. The priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor in God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And when his sins have been forgiven, there's no need to offer any more sacrifices. That's good news, friends. We have a high priest. Christ is our high priest. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Right now in the throne room of heaven, in the holiest of places, in the presence of God himself, is one who is interceding on your behalf. Someone who is fully capable of existing between us and God, who can be the perfect mediator for us, who can stand before a holy God and plead our case. A high priest who has tasted what it's like to be human, 
yet did not succumb to our brokenness. He has atoned for our sins through the shedding of his blood, setting us free from the guilt and power and the nature of sin. And now he is working to reconcile us with a holy God. That is our high priest who is interceding on our behalf right now so that we can be reunited and at one with our God forever and ever one day. Do you know you have a high priest, church? The Word made flesh, the sacrificial Lamb of God, bearing the scars of Good Friday, who goes before the Father right now, interceding on your behalf. That's what He's doing. That's what He's doing for your and my sake, making it possible for us to be with God once again. Moses was just the warm-up. He was just the appetizer for the one who was greater than Moses to come. And through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, our perfect mediator and intercessor is with a holy God right now. Do you know that, church? That's why, that's why when you pray, you can do so with confidence because your high priest knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be tempted and tested and, yes, even suffer as humans do because he understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings that we do. We don't have a high priest who's oblivious to our plight or ignorant of our pain or has never been tested like we have. Our high priest has to the fullest extent so he understands and he cares and that's That's why he can be an advocate. So when you relay your concerns and your heartaches and your confessions of sin, or when times that you've fallen short from your vows, you know you can do that because you have a perfect high priest who's interceding and pleading your case. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while with God he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So let us boldly go to the throne of our gracious God, Hebrews preaches to us. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Do you know you have a high priest this morning, friends? In Peter's letter to the church, he writes to God's chosen people, You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. And through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther He would read that, and he believed that the word priest should become as common as the word Christian, believing that all Christians are priests. In other words, the new priesthood is a priesthood of all believers. And at least in Luther's day, he said the farmhand and the milkmaid can do priestly work just as much as the pastor can. If you and I are both priests, I think we got our work cut out for us. But can I give you a place to start this morning? Can I suggest that we take a playbook out of, or take a, page out of Moses' playbook and light of our high priest, Jesus Christ, and all that he's done for us, can I invite you to consider ways that you can intercede for someone this morning? What are ways that you go before your God on the behalf of another human being? When you think about others, do you consider ways that you can lift them up, whether in your thoughts or in your prayers, in a way that you intercede for them, that you can be an advocate for them before your God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, he articulates this better. He says, A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. 
I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that formerly may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in her intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. This is a happy discovery for the Christian who begins to pray for others. There is no dislike, no personal tension, no estrangement that cannot be overcome by intercession as far as our side is concerned. Intercessory prayer is the purifying bath into which the individual and the fellowship must enter in every day. The struggle we undergo with our brother is intercession, maybe a hard one, but that struggle has the promise that it will be its goal. Intercession means that you know more, you bring your brother into the presence of God and you see them under the cross of Jesus as a poor human being and a sinner in need of Christ. Then everything in him that repels us falls away and we see in his destitution and need, his need and in his sins becoming so heavy and oppressive that we feel them in our own selves and we can do nothing else but pray. To make intercession means to grant our brother the same right that we received namely to stand before Christ and share in his mercy. Oh, I love that. I wonder how much healing can happen in our relationships with other people if instead of initially just judging them or gossiping about them, we interceded for them. We lift up their name to our great high priest and plead their case before him. We don't need to know what's going on in their lives. We just simply go before the throne of grace Would that radically change our perspectives on people? You can't hate someone if you pray for them. Maybe this is what Jesus had in mind when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Would that help you see other people in a different light if you would intercede for them on their behalf? Maybe the only intercession you can muster is what our Lord said on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. With his dying breath, our great high priest was interceding for his enemies. I'm not saying that this is the secret sauce to get God to change his mind like with Moses, but I think God values our participation and our relationship with him, and maybe God is challenging you to intercede this morning. The God revealed in Scripture is one who's open and honors our input in prayer, especially intercessory prayer. God is responsible and are responsive to what humans when they intercede for other humans. Maybe Moses is praying a prayer that God wants to hear. A prayer that's after God's own heart, not Moses's. That's a prayer that God is more keen to be responsive because it sounds like something he'd say. It sounds like something he'd do, that we take the words right out of his mouth when we speak about and we intercede for others and for God is listening to that, and that's a prayer he wants to hear. In closing, I was thinking of this song that... uh, If you ever go visit Dave Johnson, you always wind up singing. I don't know if that's just me or whatever, but I always go over to Dave's house and he's usually singing something. This is a song he sang that I just, I really like. But it captures this as the band comes forward. Somebody's praying, I can feel it. Somebody's praying for me. Mighty hands are guiding me to protect me from what I can't see. Lord, I believe. Yes, I believe. Somebody's praying for me. I know that's true in my life, friends. 
That's what intercessory prayer looks like. And if you're doing that this morning, keep doing it. Intercede for other people. That's the ministry that we're called to do. That's the priesthood that we live up to be.